It's raining in Toronto this morning. I'm drinking a cup of coffee and looking out the window, watching the cars go by on Dundas Street. I've always been a morning person. Usually when I record the show, I do it very early in the morning, like this. The whole day still in front of me. Right now I'm excited about the day. Maybe something good might happen. It feels possible, so who knows? There's a touch of optimism right now. Doesn't usually last long, so I'd better get moving. On today's episode, you're going to meet two people. A man named Simon and his daughter, Abby. And they've got a great story, a harrowing story to tell. If you're a fan of Star Wars, you are not going to want to miss this episode. It's a fact. Star Wars Battlefront 2 was maligned by basically every critic on the planet. But Simon and Abby found something really beautiful in the game. And they're going to tell you all about it. Welcome to Heavily Pixelated. I'm glad you're here. Heavily Pixelated is a show that attempts to describe all the positive things that games do for us. I'm Scott C. Jones. Hey. <laughs> oh my god, it's starting! Already. That's Simon and Abby, a father and a daughter from New York City. They are playing couch co-op, literally sitting on a couch together, playing Star Wars Battlefront 2. It's a mode called Onslaught. Oh, hi where the two of them have to battle 999 enemies. The essence of couch co-op is simple. I got your back, you've got mine. Turret down, locked one side of the corridor. This is not a good place. We're gonna learn more about Simon and Abby and the things that they've been through and how Star Wars Battlefront II helped them through an incredibly difficult time. I was a very introverted, geeky kid. That's Simon, Abby's dad. I used video gaming as um, a socializing tool. You know, I was, I was so painfully introverted and socially inept that um, I, I had a best friend and we would literally sit there for hours just playing video games and laughing, barely having a conversation outside of the games, but somehow still bonding through that experience. My best friend Darren Clark and I would sit there playing Super Smash TV on the Super Nintendo. We were obsessed by all of the stupid sound bites on the game. And there was actually an unlock code where you could just unlock a sound deck and, and play the, the sound bites in different um, pitches and speeds and so on. That was as much fun to us as playing the game. I have a, a wife, Ellie, and two daughters, Abby, who's 13, and Izzy, who's 14. I grew up in rural England, surrounded by farmland, a beautiful place to grow up. I was very sick as a kid. I had a, a lung disease that we didn't really understand at the time. I spent a lot of time in hospital. I saw a, a respiratory specialist when I was about 19. And he said to me, um, you know, you, you're probably going to need a lung transplant by the time you're 30. Um, your life expectancy is going to be considerably shortened. And, and I said to him, but, you know, I, I had this dream of becoming a singer. Do you think there's any possibility? And, and I think just out of uncomfortableness, he laughed when I said that. And I just remember walking out feeling, screw that guy. I, I don't care what he thinks. You know, I, I'm just going to go and do this. And I had zero talent as a singer, and I still do. But I, <laughs> and I, I had audition after audition, and I stunk the place out every yeah. time. 
but I stuck at it and I finally found a band who were actually willing to give me a shot. Believe it or not, this is Simon. I don't think he sounds that bad. I really tried to give my family stability while also still being me and still demonstrating to my kids that they could achieve anything. And my wife and I, before, since before the kids were born, we always wanted to make a move out to the US. We originally planned on Southern California, but uh, after my mother actually died in 2010, it really just lit a fire under us. You know, life's too short for, for not doing things. We made a move out to New York in 2011. My, my youngest daughter, Abby, is very much a mini-me when it comes to being socially awkward. Uh, she's very much introverted. She's extremely intelligent. We had her IQ tested recently, and she's in the 99th percentile. However, what we didn't realize at first, until around a year ago, was that she was suffering from severe depression. And it really creates this dangerous powder keg of a very intelligent, analytical mind who suffers from depression and, and therefore just dwells way too much on why do I suck so bad? Why do I even deserve to live? And I don't think we realized just how bad this was at first. So we kind of started her with a traditional therapist. She was put on some mild mood stabilizers. They really did nothing at all. Abby told her parents that she felt suicidal, and her parents, wanting to protect her, took turns watching over her on a literal suicide watch. The next day, she went back to school. There was an open window in the library, and Abby became obsessed with throwing herself out that open window. She waited for people to leave the library, to leave her alone, and then she approached the open window at that point, Abby told the school psychologist how she was feeling. And she was admitted for the first time into a psychiatric ward. She was hospitalized due to having constant suicidal thoughts, to being um, constantly self-harming. And we, we really felt for her own safety that she should be hospitalized, and she agreed with that. After a brief stay in the psychiatric hospital, Abby was released. But instead of the story being over, as Simon had hoped, it was really only beginning. She went through an, a child's inpatient and outpatient program. She seemed much, much better coming out of that. And we had a really great summer. We took them to Disney World and we went to Hawaii. You know, everything seemed great until she got back to school again and things absolutely spiraled out of control. The, the most recent and, and really the, the most real suicide attempt that Abby had um, and it, it still kills me to even call it a suicide attempt to acknowledge that. Abby tried to open her wrist with a kitchen knife. And when that failed, she went to school. And at school, she had heard that a, a particular kind of ink was poisonous. So she drank that ink. The first 24 hours after that, I, I think, was probably the worst period of my life. It's certainly the most terrifying as a parent. The hardest part about it was, first of all, admitting just the, the heartbreak to admit that she was back in that frame of mind again. I'd been telling myself things were, were back to normal and she was fixed and it was all going to be fine. And then to hear her talk about how she wanted to end her life, um, this was by far the lowest point for me. And.
When it came to keeping our daughter safe, that was all on me. Um, is this inevitable? It, it, you know, is it inevitable that our daughter's just going to kill herself? I don't agree with that. I, I cannot believe that. I, I definitely felt a sense of desperation, but I didn't feel that level of hopelessness and despair. Abby was taken back to the psychiatric hospital, but as she had ingested the ink, they made Simon take her to the emergency room before they would admit her. At the psychiatric hospital, because she had turned 13, she was admitted to the adolescent wing instead of the children's ward. She's now 13, she's in the adolescent wing, and that's extremely high security, it's limited access to families, and the kids that she's in there with have got drug addiction issues, they've got, um, you know, they're having sex. It's a very different crowd to the kind of five to 11-year-olds that she was with on her previous stay. And even the punishment, if kids don't toe the line within the wing that she's in, they're put on what's called on status, where their clothes are taken away, they're only allowed to wear scrubs, and they're observed 24-7 by a member of staff, literally watched while they sleep. This thing is like a prison. She's on a third floor, she's behind security doors, there are armed guards everywhere. This is literally like being in jail. And, and it just, again, I, I, I've never known worse heartbreak than having to leave her there. She didn't seem safe, and to walk away and leave her in that just drove me crazy. Now what you've got is this kid who's very sad, suffering from depression, who's effectively in what's a very nice jail. Simon kept his emotions bottled up until he drove home at night from the hospital. Driving home at some ridiculous breakneck speed in this old Mustang that I drive, and just at one point, just screaming, just screaming and screaming, just bellowing into the void until my voice was hoarse, like until I literally had nothing left. Our biggest concern at that point was that as she was still depressed, they could very easily have institutionalized her. My wife would visit every, every morning, all morning. I would visit every afternoon until 7 p.m. And, you know, work just had to take a back seat for both of us um, just to keep her spirits up and, and just make sure that, uh, you know, if, if she had told the, um, the staff there that she was depressed or suicidal again, our thought was that she was never coming out. We weren't ever going to get her home, and it was absolutely terrifying. It was completely outside of our control to get her out of that place. Normally in the psychiatric wing, they discharge people after seven to ten days. But in Abby's case, they kept her for three weeks. After three weeks, they finally let her out, and, and she goes for another four weeks to a, a city outpatient hospital uh, in Manhattan, which is a four-hour round trip. It was a real hike. But on the bright side, Abby seems to be making progress. She really put a ton of effort into learning new coping skills. Her medication was tweaked significantly, and she comes out incredibly strong, like a very different kid when she comes out. Uh, okay, great. You know, she's back at school. She seems to be uh, engaged. She's reporting that she's safe every day. All of that stuff is good. But we've got this kind of family bond which is broken, both with my younger daughter and my, my older daughter, through what they've been through. And <clears throat> as I said earlier, really the only social skill I had in my toolbox was video games. She used to play Star Wars Battlefront with me and we would swap the controller between us and have a great time. When Star Wars Battlefront 2 released an update in October, 
Um, they, they had a new pack come out that included General Grievous from the Clone Wars movies. She's a, a fanatic General Grievous fan. She, she's one of that generation who grew up loving the prequels. No, they're not. Roger, roger. Yes, they are. Whoa. We would play this mode where there's a co-op mode. Um, you play together on the same team. You can both be Jedi and Sith and whatever you want. If you're looking for this mode on your copy of Star Wars Battlefront 2, it's called Onslaught. And you play against nearly 1,999 computer AI opponents. What are you doing, dude? Abby would just control General Grievous permanently, scur scurry around like a crab as General Grievous lightsabering people around every corner. And she would belly laugh. It was just the best thing to hear, where she would forget all of the crap that she'd been through oh and just God, belly laugh at General Grievous for, for an hour or two. All right. Can I be General Grievous? Can you can be, be General Grievous? I can be General Grievous. Okay, do it. Don't forget to set his cards. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that was... I'm just going to be a heavy. Come on, General. We got this. Come on, General, Simon says. We got this. I'm at the top of some stairs and I put a turret defending where I am on one side. Okay, I think but I know where you are. There's a flood of clones coming in the other side. Okay. Oh, there's more behind me. I love this moment when Abby steps back, observes the battlefield around them both, and makes this assessment. I'm actually doing pretty well. Good. But then she gets into trouble and she asks her father for help. I'm a coming, Simon says. As promised, a few seconds later, he's there, and he fights off the enemies that are attacking. Hey, General Grievous. I'm crawling around. Get him, General. Ah! <laughs> My head exploded. Oh. <laughs> oh. Oh. <laughs> Remember, they're working together to wipe out 999 enemies. Oh, Quiet, puberty Kylo Ren. Quiet, puberty Kylo Ren, Abby says. Get back here! At this point, Simon and Abby oh, are in sync completely. Then, something beautiful happens. The energetic banter dries up and the two of them just work in silence together perfectly. Suddenly there are 30, then 20, and then 10. Seven left. Seven little clones. 23 minutes to kill them. Five. Oh, oh no. Oh man, there's a lot down this corridor. Whoa. One left. One left. Ah! The last enemy is eliminated, and it's over. That was pretty successful. I had a rough start, but... <sighs> Simon and Abby have done it again.
Abigail Rice and I'm from, well, right now I live in New York City, but I was originally born in England, I think. <laughs> you were absolutely Yeah, I think it was England. Burnham. I think it was Burnham. Burnham, okay. Yeah. When you two play a game together, do you have a role and do you have a role? I think I'm more good at strategizing and planning ahead, <laughs> and he's more good at kind of offensive going all out. Kick the door down. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no. yeah that's, that's definitely true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think when we play Battlefront 2, actually, that's the one where we actually strategize a lot. We'll find some bunker and Abby will guard one door and I'll guard the other one. Yeah. And we'll have one watching the radars. That sounds really fun. It really is. Yeah. yeah. And I understand you have a certain affinity for a character named General Grievous. Yeah. Look he, at you smiling. I was, say the word grievous and you start smiling. He was always my favorite character throughout the movies. He was in one movie, but I loved him so much. After a few more minutes of conversation about General Grievous, Abby begins to tell me her story. I was feeling awful and I wanted to die. I actually attempted suicide. I felt quite hopeless. I think I just really felt like my life was just a plain cycle. Then the next day I tried to kill myself again during school and nobody noticed. My parents talked to me about it and we decided that I wasn't safe in my own home and I needed to stay at a mental hospital. Me and my dad drove up to the hospital. I was taken up to the adolescent ward. Because Abby had attempted suicide, she was put on status automatically. When you're on status, the first thing they do is they take away your clothes and they give you these paper-like hospital scrubs to wear. I got changed into these weird, big, baggy blue clothes. It felt like paper, it was really uncomfortable. When you're on status, you also have to be watched or in the hospital's language observed around the clock. All of this, of course, makes Abby uncomfortable. Abby also learns that while on status, she needs to be observed while showering and also while going to the bathroom. They had to have the door open. I was getting watched by a stranger in a very private moment. Abby had a roommate at first, but eventually she got her own private room. That's when things started getting seriously downhill for me. This loud blaring alarm went off and I heard talking and I heard yelling and I heard shouting and I was freaking out. Abby, trying to calm herself down, hid underneath the desk in her room and wrapped herself in a blanket. For the next few days, the alarms kept going off and nobody, according to Abby, ever told her why the alarms were going off. I looked out from under the desk and I said, I'm just down here. I really don't like the alarm. And the guy who looked in said, you're doing so well. Don't start doing this now. Don't start doing this now. You were doing so well. I can feel her frustration and her hopelessness in this moment. A couple days later, I was talking to the psychiatrist and the psychologist about getting discharged. What they proposed was this. They would send her to a school that would provide her with the care she needed, but she wouldn't be allowed to go home. And I was incredibly angry at this. And I was frustrated and I kept saying, I don't need to be here anymore. I can be discharged. I'm safe. 
I'm all right. I don't want to be here anymore. Abby responds to this by going on strike. She's not going to go to groups anymore, not going to participate in activities. She's not going to eat. I was thinking, I'm just going to strike out until they decide to let me leave. I'm not going to go to any of the groups. I'm not going to go to eat. I'm not going to do anything. Her mother, Ellie, tried to talk some sense into her. She sat down with me and she said, you can't do this. You're just proving them right. You're proving that you need to stay here for longer. I just agreed. Finally, after many conversations, the doctors and Abby's parents came to an agreement. Abby was finally free. Abby and her family returned home, and the first thing Abby notices is something that her dad did for her. My dad, he had cleaned up my room and organized everything. And it was just so nice coming home to a clean room where I could just relax and cool down. I remember my parents and my family just being there for me the whole way through it and helping me and supporting me. Even when I felt like things are going downhill again, nothing's going to get better, they would just lift me up again and just help me through the finish line. Yeah, little by little, they helped me become happy again and become confident again. And they really helped me heal. And there's definitely times when I do feel like going back into my old habits or I do feel panicked. And I know that they'll always be there to help me. I'm always grateful for that. Thank you for your story. It's really incredible. You're so young. Yeah. And I can see in your eyes, like, you have so much history already because you've been through so much. And you've experienced things emotionally that probably people your age haven't experienced at this point. And I can see that history in your eyes. And I also see a little glimmer of hope in there. And I see you healing in your eyes. I can see it. And it makes me so happy to see those two things, the hope and, the, and that glimmer of healing and keep gravitating towards both those things every day. Like it's like your dad will tell you, I'm, I'm not lying, like life is not easy. And there are lots of days when, when I don't want to go on anymore and I don't want to do this, I don't want to do my life anymore. And, I, and, it, and you just, you, you got to get out of bed and you got to keep finding ways to make yourself happy. But you're part of us, you're, part, you're a human, and you belong with us. Mm-hmm. I'm, st- I'm glad that you're still here. Me too. Keep being here. Okay? Okay. Your story was so moving to me. You told it so well. You're a storyteller. Like, that's part of your DNA. Yeah. Yeah, so keep telling stories. And keep telling your story. I think you have a great story. Simon and Abby had flown to Toronto to do these interviews, coincidentally, over Pride weekend. One thing I find really ironic and and fantastic about being here this weekend is I think one of the lowest points for me was during the whole cycle of getting into that psychiatric ward Mm -hmm. you get asked a laundry list of questions over and over and over again 
and one is sexuality. Mm. And Abby was saying, I'm a lesbian, I'm a lesbian, each time she was asked this. But I, I didn't know before those admissions forms. Like, I, you know, I don't think I was shocked, and I certainly was happy for you, but I felt that just by having to give that kind of black and white response on a form, it took away your opportunity to actually come out and, you know, do that at your own pace. And I, I love the fact that we're here now in the middle of Pride. It's crazy out there. You're going to be able to just be yourself out there in a community of people who respect that. I have uh, Mitch here. Hi, Simon. Hi, Abby. Hey there, Mitch. How you doing? This is Mitch Dyer. He's from EA's Motive Studio in Montreal. He was the primary writer for Star Wars Battlefront 2. I'm doing swell. How are you guys? Yeah, we're doing great. We, we really love Battlefront 2, partly because it was set in the sort of Clone Wars era. We, we were always fans of the prequels. I know, you know, there's a bunch of haters out there, but we, we love the fact that you could be what we called the Roger Roger robots. Yes. <laughs> the other thing we loved about the game was the split-screen multiplayer. Abby had been going through a really tough time dealing with depression and, and anxiety and um, had spent some time in a psychiatric hospital. Um, it it, it kind of got to the point where mental health and the treatment for mental health issues just became everything. You know, we were either in a hospital or we were traveling to a hospital. You know, for the illness and the treatment of that illness to become the focus of your life kind of weighs you down. The one memory I had, which just still makes me smile to this day, was when Abby first came home from the psychiatric hospital. She'd been in her room for a while, just trying to adjust for the, the feeling of kind of breaking out of jail and being back home and having our own personal space and came downstairs and we were hanging out on the couch and I fired up the PlayStation and saw that there'd been an update to Battlefront 2 and it was the update that included General Grievous, which is Abby's favorite character. The belly laughs that she was giving, just the giant <laughs> smile on her face, completely forgetting about everything that had gone before and just existing in the moment and having just so much fun with the game um, was worth a million bucks. I really love that. If you're, if you're being weighed down by depression or you're, you're feeling a little crippled by anxiety, it's really nice to have somewhere safe to go and a, a place of comfort like that. It's so nice to find that security blanket. I'm really, 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 really happy that you guys got to find it in this. <laughs> Thank you. I find that just your dedication to the game and how even now there's still new updates coming to it. I find that just so incredible and I'm so grateful that you're continuing to be adding new features and new characters. I find your dedication amazing. Thank you for doing all of that. Of course, thank you. It comes genuinely from a place of caring. It comes really from an appreciation of Star Wars and, and wanting to kind of ha to live in it. And it's, it's a very rare privilege to be able to do that. And the people who are working on Star Wars, like especially on the Lucasfilm side, it's really amazing to get to work with that team. It was really nice to see how much they cared and took us seriously. We never were treated like we were just a video game. One thing you reminded me of that I just wanted to gush about for 20 seconds. And then <laughs> the, the moment in, um, in Last Jedi, when you look inside Luke's home on, on um, Acto, where, you, where Luke's at his home in Acto, yeah. see on his shelf the compass that he found in Star Wars Battlefront 2 in the story mode. And 
to see you know a game that we loved playing reflected in in the, the, the trilogy was just phenomenal do you guys want to know how that happened so we at a certain point when we were making the campaign we needed something important for luke to find on pilio and we didn't know what it was mm-hmm. so we started pitching to lucasfilm the idea of a of a luke skywalker mission we we thought for sure they would say no way right this is luke skywalker he's holy you don't really get to touch mm-hmm. luke skywalker mm-hmm. we didn't really know what we were getting into we didn't know they were going to take us as seriously as they did so we thought ah well you know we'll shoot for the stars and we pitched this idea that Luke is going to go to this planet at the edge of nowhere, and whatever he finds is going to be something that puts him on the island at the end of Episode 7. That was kind of our pitch. We talked to Lucas home for a long time about what that item would be, and they had this idea that, okay, we'll have this compass, and then what we could do is maybe we could have Ryan Johnson put it in the movie. So what happened is, over the course of about a weekend, we had, I think Dave Filoni did this concept. Dave Filoni, who does the, he's in charge of, you know, all of like Lucasfilm animation. He's, he's directing episodes of The Mandalorian. He was George Lucas's protege on The Clone Wars. Dave drew this concept for the compass and they sent it off to wherever they were shooting The Last Jedi. And they had a prop manufacturer make that prop and put it in Luke's hut. And, and we, we heard like, yeah, they put it in Luke's hut. The compass is there. It's going to be in the game. That's what it's going to look like. Great. And we thought that was the end of it. We thought, oh, cool, like maybe that compass will get a call out in a book. When Motive as a studio and the team here that made the story mode went to the theater as a team to see The Last Jedi, and there's that shot of the compass, it, it like took the, the air left of the room. You could just feel wow. everybody in the theater go, and <gasps> no idea it was going to be like a full-on prominent explicit shot of the compass. Since the movie came out, I've obviously seen The Last Jedi like however many times. And the thing that stands out to me now is, and if you maybe you've noticed this, in the flashback when Luke is in Ben's room at the Jedi Temple, he's he's thinking back, you know, ten or however many years. You can see the compass on Ben's desk. So at some point, Luke Skywalker gave that compass to Ben, and after Ben destroyed the Jedi Temple, Luke somehow got it back. And I'm like, I'm dying to know that story. There's some big grins here in New York. The conclusion of that story in Battlefront 3, maybe? I wish I knew. I wish I knew the future. <laughs> Simon, that's enough. Leave, leave Mitch alone. Uh, <laughs> Mitch has to keep some things to himself. So thank you for, for your work on the game and for taking the time to talk to us today. We really Thank you both, it. honestly. This is like this is great. This is why we make games. Thank you. Thank you, too. It's been such an honor for me to meet you. Um, and keep being your wonderful, weird, cool self. Thank you. <laughs> like, that is the best kind of self you can be. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you, too. All right. Yeah. Can I give you a hug? Is that weird? No, it's not weird. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. Honestly, it really, your story was just heartbreaking and also so empowering. Simon and Abby gathered their things and then headed off into Toronto's pride-filled afternoon. If you'd like to see photos of Simon and Abby at Toronto's Pride, go to my website, scottcjones.com.
Music tracks today include Poddington Bear's version of Claire de Lune, Balloons Rising by A.A. Alto, Kalalo by the Blue Dot Sessions, Song for the New Year by Lee Rosevere. All music tracks can be found on the Free Music Archive, freemusicarchive.org. Special thanks to Mitch Dyer at EA's Motive Studio in Montreal. Mitch, you are a sweet guy to do this. Really appreciate it. Thanks also to Gino Talens at Electronic Arts. Gino is the senior PR manager, and he's done nothing but good things for Heavily Pixelated. So thank you, Gino. Star Wars Battlefront 2, yeah, the critics said lousy things about it, but Simon and Abby really enjoy it. You can pick up a copy for less than 20 bucks, so what do you got to lose? Quick public service announcement. One in two people will be diagnosed with a mental health condition in their lifetime especially in the video game community. And the idea that no one will miss me if I'm gone is a pervasive one. TakeThis.org was founded to let people know how wrong that is. Do your part. Go to their website, TakeThis.org, and find out how you can help. Sarah Deakins is the producer of Heavily Pixelated. The patient, mighty, and grumpy Stephen Nikolic is the audio director. And if you've got a story that you think would be great on the show, send it to heavilypix at gmail.com. We'd really love to hear from you. I'm Scott C. Jones. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. We'll see you then. Bye.